there, I'm Mark Isero, and welcome back to Article Club, where we read, annotate, and discuss one great article every month on race, education, or culture. I'm really excited that you're listening to this, because this month we're focusing on one of my favorite articles of the entire year. It's called The Fog, Living in Adoption's Emotional Aftermath by Larissa Mafarker, and it was originally published in The New Yorker back in April. It's about adoptions, specifically adoptees. And it is pretty deep and intense, and I really think all of you should read it and hopefully also join us in the discussion. What she does is pretty amazing. She profiles three adoptees. Uh, Their names are Deanna, Joy, and Angela, and they come from three categories of adoption, invisible or closed adoptions, uh, transracial adoptions, and international adoptions. And what I appreciate so much about this article is just how unflinching as well as direct Ms. Mafarker is with profiling the experiences, the complicated experiences of all of these three women. I don't want to go into it too much, but it discusses this concept of the fog or coming out of the fog, this idea of coming to terms with the trauma and also the complicated feelings of being adopted. It's just really, I think, worth all of our time, no matter sort of like how much knowledge we have on the subject, to be able to read this article and to really just sit with it. So I encourage you to do that. I got the chance, I got the opportunity to speak with Ms. Mafarker and to be able to interview her last Friday. And as always, it was a huge honor. We talked about a lot of different things. And I just have to say that it was just really interesting to get an additional nuance from her. So I really hope that you appreciate this conversation and listen in. And I just want to say also that we're going to be discussing this piece on December 3rd at 2 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. And I really encourage you to sign up for that. But instead of saying too much right now, I just really want to get you into the discussion, into the interview. So here we are. Please enjoy. Larissa, thank you so much for doing Article Club. Thank you so much for inviting me. You've written about a lot of things. We definitely wanted to know why adoption and how did this piece come about in the first place? Yeah, I have written in the past about the child protective system, as it's called in New York. And I became really interested in and horrified, actually, by the way that the state takes away so many children from parents who deeply want them. I had started that piece thinking that what I was interested in was the decision whether or not to remove a child, because that struck me as an unbelievably fraught, impossible, difficult decision. And at the time, I thought it it was a decision made by uh, caseworkers. And so I started down that route. And usually I want to do an article to solve a problem or answer a question that I cannot figure out. And in this case, that was the question. How do you make that choice? And usually I end up the article just as confused as I was at the beginning, if not more so. But in this case, unusually, I ended up not confused at all. I felt that the state was doing enormous damage and removing far too many children. And one of the things that I observed in my many hours at the family court courthouse in the Bronx was adoption day. They have this adoption day with lots of balloons and teddy bears. And it was a day that the judges and, and workers in the family court deeply valued as this rare, happy event in in what were usually very grim circumstances. And also it was thought of as the end of the story, like the child has been through all kinds of stuff, but 
thank goodness the child has been adopted and all is well, and they will go on to have a wonderful life. But I became interested in what actually does happen after that. This is not the end of the story. The child is very young. The parents are desperately unhappy in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases to have lost their kid. And what happens next? So I started looking into adoption and it was also precipitated by an editor at The New Yorker who had been looking around online and noticed that there was this trope coming out of the fog that was was being discussed by adoptees of all ages coming to a kind of self-consciousness of themselves as adoptees, both personally and as a group and politically. And, and so the combination of these two things, the editor and I started talking and realized that there was a lot to look into in adoption that is not usually discussed because I think most of us, and I'm ashamed to say even I, for most of my life, just assume the view of adoption that is promoted by adoption agencies, adoptive parents, and society as a whole, which is that it is happy and the end of the story. Yeah, I was there too. And a lot of other article clubbers, especially people who um, are not adoptees, like this notion of what adoption is supposed to be. Um, I had never heard about the fog or coming out of the fog, for example. And I wanted to ask you more about like, how did you feel like you learned more about this notion? At the beginning of the piece, you talk about how it's extremely complicated and also different people have different feelings. But do you remember how you felt there at the beginning as you were following this notion of the fog? It was harrowing reading a lot of the, I started out online reading because when I was talking with this editor, he said that there were all these testimonies and TikToks online from adoptees, adult adoptees who were coming to a kind of consciousness about their lives. And so I started looking around online, TikTok, blog posts and reading. And as I said, it was harrowing reading some of these stories, but I also felt really stupid. I had spent all this time writing about the child welfare system. And I remembered being there for adoption day with the bears, the teddy bears and the balloons and thinking how sweet and not thinking. I just felt really dumb for not having realized that this little kid who is holding a new bear and a, a balloon and is maybe six years old and is about to go to a completely new family with strangers or maybe foster parents that are not um, strangers, but still a new family. How could this be uncomplicated? Yeah, absolutely. From the beginning, I don't think that you hold back, though, as far as the pain and the shame and all the complicated feelings. And you begin mm -hmm. with Deanna, and she just lays it out, and you allow her to talk about all the complicated feelings. And one of the things that's just grabbed me from the beginning is her conception that it's not that she was adopted, but that she is adopted. Can you say a little bit more about that and how it hit you at the time? Yeah, she, I think the way I put it in the article is that she helped me see, and she certainly feels that being adopted is a very different way of being human from growing up with your biological family. And it so happens that Deanna's uh, adoptive family was not a happy one. But that is, her point is, it's not just about that, because obviously there are millions of biological families that are miserable, right? I mean, they're unhappy childhoods of all stripe, stripe. and adoption, there's no uh, rule that adoptive kids are, are more or less unhappy than biological kids, but it's different. It's profoundly different. And that's what she wants to draw attention to is the way that it is, it is bewildering to know that you have the two people who created you who are presumably 
like you in some deep ways, but whom you've never met. In her case, she was adopted as an infant. Obviously, this is not true of everyone, are out there and they could be quite close by. And she would, if she went to a baseball game, she would be looking around and to see if there was anyone who felt familiar and sort of reminded her of herself. I mean, and just the feeling of knowing that these incredibly important people in your life are out there, but they are blocked from your knowledge. You're not allowed to find them. This is something that, I, as I say in the article, adoptees are very different from each other. But one thing that almost all of them agree on is that the laws, almost all, I can't remember now the, the, the number, but the I believe the great majority of states prohibit an adoptive child from seeing their original birth certificate, which is to say the certificate with their biological parents' names on it, or at least one name. They only are allowed to see their amended birth certificates, which is to say the certificates with their adoptive parents' names on them. And so it's very difficult, uh, especially for adoptees of Deanna's generation, she was born in 66, to find their parents at all. And she always felt not just the loss, the profound loss of her biological parents, but also the strangeness of not belonging in her adoptive family. And of course, this is her. Some adoptees uh, not only adore their parents, adoptive parents, but feel a deep sense of belonging in their adoptive families and never go through these emotions. Every story is different. But in Deanna's case, she she didn't look like her parents. It wasn't a racial thing. They were all white, but they were of different country national backgrounds. And Deanna's father was from Greece. And as she found when she met him, finally found him decades and decades later, she looked just like him. She never felt that she looked like her adoptive parents. She never felt that she was the same personality. She felt like her personality was too big for them, that she just didn't fit. And this is something that many adoptees talk about. Even the adoptees which thankfully are mostly from prior generations who were never told they were adopted and found out only much later. Yeah, it was really amazing how you are profiling three women and they come from three categories of adoption, Deanna, Joy, and Angela. And as you say, there's they're very different people. And mm -hmm. yet they have a whole lot of similarities that you weave through, through the piece. Deanna, at the beginning, you say that she sometimes feels like a ghost of a twin. And we also see that also with the other two women as well, this idea of, okay, I know I exist, but how do I exist? And do I actually exist? And it was just really interesting how you both showed how different they are, but also the similarities. And one of the ways that I noticed, and obviously you have a history of profile, profiling, is with Joy in particular, I was really struck by her stories and her memories and how you made those come to life. She's adopted from Korea and you just tell her story and her memories, even if her memories she finds out later might have been different than what she thought. You talk about the plane ride over, you talk about meeting her white parents and being scared with her blue, with their blue eyes. And I guess my question is like, when you're asking these questions, first of all, what do you ask? And then how do you listen as they tell you their memories and their stories? In the case of Joy, actually, in the case of all three, I, I encountered, as I said before, all three of them online. And so when I first met them in person, I had already read, they all three of these women had previously written about their experiences to a greater or lesser extent. And so I had some sense of what they had been through. And that's how I 
But of course, I would have asked about their memories anyway, especially I would have asked Joy, who, unlike the other two, were not was adopted as a six-year-old, not an infant. But in terms of how to listen, I guess it's funny. I don't know how to answer that question because I'm, I'm by the time I, I arrive at someone's house or wherever I'm, we're meeting and I want to tell the story of their life, I am so interested in everything they have to say that I just want to spend as much time with them as they will be generous enough to give me. And the only difference in this story is that one thing that adoption does, and thank you for reminding me about that didn't exist, because that is a very important thing that I slipped my mind. That is a profound thing that many of them feel that they don't really exist because they don't have the sort of biological anchors that other people have. Like they, they seem to have arrived on the earth out of nowhere. But also another thing that's very strange about being adopted is that you're life story is often quite scrambled, not just in the sense that you you have a, a, a very uh, profound uh, break in the middle or at the beginning of it where you are removed from one set of parents and given to another, but also that in most cases, you find out about your life in bits and pieces. So whereas when I'm talking to most people about their lives, I often start at the very beginning um, in their childhood. Not always, but often. But with these interviews, they were more meandering and broken up because that is the nature of adoptive or adoptee life is that you find out bits and pieces here and there. And some pieces will always remain blank. You will never fill them in. You will never find out some things you think are true, but you're not sure. It's a very strange. And actually, when I was writing this piece, I, I wanted to convey that with the form of the piece. And so I initially, fortunately for me, I'm in a writing group. And so I was able to give it a test drive. I wrote this piece very differently at first in a very broken up, jagged, out of order way. And it was intentionally confusing because all of these women started out with one name and then were given a second name. And I wanted the reader to experience some of the bewilderment and the confusion and even the distress that the adoptees feel where they're like, what is going on? Whose life is this? Who is this person? But I gave the draft to my writing group and they were like, we have no idea what was going on. Who are these people? What, what are these six women? How are they related to each other? It was way too, it was way too hard to understand. So I, I rewrote it as a more or less conventional narrative because it was just too complicated. But I did want to convey some of that disorientation and out of orderness and blanks that are just a core part of what it means to be an ad adoptee. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the form. And it's very interesting how you said that you changed it up. Like even in the current form, because you have three women that you're profiling, I was like, okay, I'm going to need to keep track of this for a while. But then over time, it became much easier. And it did feel also toward the middle of the piece, I felt like the commonalities were coming together more. And mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest ones was how you spent a lot of time with each of the women finding their birth parents in, in some sort of way. And I felt like that was the emotionally toughest and rawest and for me, deepest part. They all had their different journeys. But again, like there wasn't anything particularly happy about their entire experience. And I wanted to ask you also, this is where I felt some anger toward the birth parents because of some of their choices and some of their shame 
but I felt like you did a lot also to try to build their the empathy toward them. And I wanted to ask you how you balanced some of that as you decided how to write this part. That's really interesting that you felt anger. I understand where that's coming from because obviously the adoptees were in such pain to have lost their parents, but I, I didn't feel that at all. And so I think in all three cases, in two out of three cases, they technically had a choice, but I don't feel like it was a choice at all. And I did not feel any anger towards those women. Just immense sadness. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that my feelings came more. I wanted them to accept their kids when their kids tried to find them. I see. Yes. But do you remember what, what Joy's mother said when I last saw you? You were a three-year-old child. Yeah. You're yeah. a grown woman. I don't know who you are. And like, Yeah, and Angela's as well. Like for I can, even though it was so heartbreaking when Angela's uh, birth mom says, I don't have children. That was just so heartbreaking after all of that. Later on, you explained like why that all happened. And I felt like Angela's story was perhaps maybe the most fraught in so many ways, just because of the issues of race mm -hmm. and like how she was adopted and what her life was like. And then her husband, and she basically shows up with a few white people at her birth mom's home. And that just must have been really difficult for everybody. Oh, yes. Angela is, is an extraordinary activist now in the adoption area. She, well, when I say activist, it sounds like she is, she knows exactly what she's fighting for. She's ambivalent about, she definitely thinks transracial adoption should be far more rare than it is. And that people should be far more aware that love is not enough. That if you are, let's say, uh, a white family adopting a black kid, if you are in uh, a place like she grew up where there were almost no other black people and she was raised uh, as a black woman, uh, well, a child in an almost entirely white world, that's going to mess you up no matter how loving your parents are. And her parents were very loving and she's super close to them. So it wasn't about, there was, they, she's, she's still very close to her parents. It wasn't about anything that they personally did wrong. It was the structure of the situation. And they were of a generation where colorblindness in adoption as in other areas was an ideal and they were idealistic. And but she she and many other transracial adoptees are now, and this was, as I said in the piece, this was a this was an issue that was brought up and fought by the National Association of Black Social Workers in the early 70s. They opposed all transracial adoptions for this reason. But the tide didn't start to turn until more recently. And it's still extremely common. But Angela Angela, it doesn't feel like it should never happen, but she does feel that anyone who wants to adopt transracially needs to be very, needs to think very carefully about like, where do they live? Who are they? What are their feelings? How are they going to care for this child? It's different from a biological child. It's different from a same race adoption. And so she's really making it her work to minimize those adoptions, but also when they happen to make them as thoughtful, as thoughtful as possible. Yeah. You say, you, you write in the piece that she goes through this journey about her identity. And this is, again, for all three women, it's all around identity. And for Angela, she can come to the, she can come to terms that she's grateful to have been adopted but also that she still wishes that she wasn't. And I felt like that was very deep. And I felt like you were also 
sharing that with the reader as far as like the complexity. So like you began the piece with the complexity and then you ended it all, ended the piece also with this complexity. And I wanted to ask you what you were hoping for the reader to be left with, the both the feeling, but also like potential questions, because we are going to be discussing your piece in a couple of weeks. One thing I wanted the reader to understand, and it's, it's interesting because I got some messages and letters after the piece came out asking in effect, what do you want? What do you want? What are you saying we should do? Are you saying that all these kids should just stay in foster care? And that is a question that a lot of, especially white parents who want to adopt transracially will say, and it's definitely a question. One of the things I wanted to get across is it's the wrong question. The great question is, why are those kids in foster care in the first place? I came across an astonishing statistic, which I put in the piece in the course of reporting, that the rate of Black women voluntarily giving up their children for adoption has been for decades statistically zero. So it's not zero, actually zero, but it's very low. And yet foster care is filled with Black children. Why is that? It's because they are being taken away. And to go back to the beginning of our conversation, they're being removed from their parents by an, in my view, overzealous child protective system. And that's why they're in foster care. So the right question is, how can we make it so that there are fewer kids removed from their parents when their parents really want them? What can we do to make it possible for those parents to raise their kids if they are encountering difficulties such as homelessness or addiction or other problems that definitely make it difficult to raise kids, but are not um, a matter of love? So that is definitely something I want people to think about. I want these issues to be paired in the way that they're not always, because I think when we often talk about ado adoption, it's like, we just think that these kids are just in baskets on the church steps or something, that they're coming from nowhere. And that's almost never true. And I think just to, to be able to sit with the complexity of it, because I, when I was writing this piece, I also, oh gosh, it was so harrowing in so many ways. And one of the ways was I did not, the message I did not want to get uh, to, to promote a message of adoptive parents should not be adopting or there's something wrong with wanting to adopt. Not at all. And there are so many adoptive parents who probably, I hope, the vast majority of them who, who deeply love their children. And um, I didn't want to hurt them or question that love. I guess what I wanted to carry was the message of the adoptees themselves, which is that it's not only about love, that love is not always enough, that there is a lot else. And also that you can love more than one set of parents. So if they find their biological parents, it shouldn't necessarily feel like a threat to the adoptive parents. It's not a sign that they're dissatisfied with the love that they've received in their adoptive home or to feel as Angela did, as you just quoted, that you are grateful to have been adopted. You love your adoptive parents but you still wish you weren't adopted in the first place. That doesn't mean you don't love them. There's so many, it's so complex. And I just, I guess that's what I wanted people to take away. At the same time, it was a very conscious decision to really not have much information about the adoptive parents in the piece, because this is something I heard loud and clear from every adoptee I read or talked to, that adoption is almost always talked about through through the thoughts and from the point of view of the adoptive parents. And so I thought it was important in this piece 
to focus on the adoptees and to make it clear that they have a whole emotional life story that is going on inside them that can have nothing to do with the adoptive parents could be bad. They could be wonderful. It doesn't matter. Even regardless of how wonderful the parents are, there's this whole other thing going on that it would be really good, much better if they knew about. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. The way that you write the piece is just so directly to the reader about not just adoption, but also like bringing to the reader the lives of Deanna, Joy, and Angela. And I just want to thank you for the piece. I want to thank you so much for how you wrote it as well. And also for this time, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about your piece here. Thank you very much for having me on this podcast. It's a wonderful thing you've created, and I'm really honored to be part of it. I want to thank Larissa one more time for your piece and also for sharing all your thoughts with us. It was just really deeply moving to hear you talk a little bit more about your outstanding piece. So thank you. Also, Article Clubbers and everybody who's listening, I want to appreciate you also for listening in on this interview, as well as for participating in Article Club and reading this wonderful piece. If you are interested in discussing it with other thoughtful people, uh, please sign up. We're going to be meeting and discussing this piece on December 3rd from 2 to 3.30 p.m. Pacific time. And all you need to do is go to highlighter.cc slash discussion to sign up. You can also email me with any questions at mark at articleclub.org. That's it for now. And thank you again and hope you have a good weekend ahead.